Welcome to the inaugural episode of Navigating Navi. We're going to be studying Navi as the title implies. In general, our methodology will be we will be reading all the psukim, uh, reading the actual text, the word of God. And I, I'm going to try not to skip, even though there will be sections that involve long lists of uh, place names and boundaries. I will try to read uh, all the all the psukim, although there may be some cases we have to skip a little bit. Um, we will read some of the commentaries and discuss some of the ideas of the commentaries and some themes related to the Navi we'll discuss uh, freeform uh, externally. Uh, we'll start today with a little bit of introduction. I, I'm, not really one for, I'm not really one for big, grand, uh, thematic introductions like you might find in the arts world, but I, I just want to speak a little bit, first of all, about the, about the nature of Navi and a little bit about the introduction of Yoshua, and then we'll, uh, then we'll begin the actual study of Yoshua. So, in, uh, in Judaism and Torah, we have Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat Peh, the written Torah and the oral Torah. The written Torah is, because I'll call it Torah Shabbat they also call it Mikra, that which is read. Uh, mikra is a very common word. We call it typically Tanakh. Our, our term today is, is Tanakh. Tanakh is actually not the term that is really used in Chazal. Sometimes we find in traditional sources it's called Chaf Dalad. There are 24 books in Tanakh. We find various Midrashim about that. But the, the traditional terms are either uh, Mikra, which encompasses all of the, the written Torah, Torah Shabbat Sav, or the Chaf Dalad. Parenthetical aside, this corresponds roughly to what the Christians call the, New, the Old Testament. Not exactly. Depends which Old Testament. I remember once I was in a, I was in a museum and I saw various biblical scenes that were painted by European masters. One of them said, this is from the Old Testament book of Susanna, the Old Testament book of, uh, of, of other, another one. And I was thinking to myself, like, I'm not an expert on Tanakh, but I'm pretty sure there is no book of Susanna in the, in the Haftalad. And I, I, when I got home, I looked it up, and sure enough, the, the, some of the, some of the, the Old Testament does not include the New Testament, but some versions of the Christian Old Testament includes what, what, what are called the Apocrypha, or some of the Sfarim Chitzonim, which were extra-canonical works that Erchachamim did not include in, in Torah, in Torah Shemuch Maccabees. Maccabees, right. Maccabees, the Book of Jubilees, the, the Book of Susanna. There are a handful of books. Some of them were not included because clearly, obviously we know why they're not included, because the ideas, even if they're pre-Christian, the ideas are clearly against the, the rabbinic tradition. Like the Book of Jubilees has a calendar, a solar calendar, with, with only with a fixed you know, solar year. It's not the lunar calendar that we use, the hybrid calendar that we use. The Book of Susanna is actually an interesting case because it includes a story involving Adam Zimmerman, a court case. It, it, a little bit of it reads like you know modern, a modern, uh, a modern detective television show or a detective novel with a woman falsely accused, and uh, the hero, um, a man named Daniel, Daniel, cross-examines the witnesses and catches them in inconsistencies, and he exonerates her. And, and uh, but but some of the laws involved are not consistent with the Torah's laws. Uh, Professor Schneer Lyman has suggested that's why it wasn't included. Chazal knew it was a uh, not a uh, not an accurate, not a uh, certainly not a biblical biblical worthy book. But roughly speaking, the the mikra, the chafda, the mikra chafdalid Tanakh is similar to the Christian uh, Old Testament. We call it mikra because Tarsh Ralpeh, of course, was not written. So it, when, when you learn Gemara, you will often see whenever Chazal introduced literature of Tarsh Ralpeh, the term that they always use is words that have to do with learning. Tanya, Tanan, Tanu Rabbanan, those are all words uh, that, that are equivalent to the Hebrew shanu. The, the shin and the tuff are interchangeable, so the, the word means shanu, like Mishinantam Levanecha. Whenever Chazal talk about Torah Shabalpeh, the oral Torah, it was not written. So they used words like they used words like we learned, we studied, we were taught. 
Whenever they quote Mikra, Tarash Bechsav, the word is always Dechsiv. They refer to it as Mikra because it was read from the written text, and then they use words like Dechsiv. Whenever they introduce a Pasuk, the quote is always Dechsiv, it is written. Dechsiv is not used in Tanakh, in, in Chazal, for almost anything except Tarash Bechsav. The one exception, the, the, virtually the only exception, is one or two of these extra canonical works, like Ben Sira. Wisdom literature occasionally is introduced with the word Dechsiv, but Dechsiv is almost universally reserved for Tanakh. That was virtually the only thing they had that was written, and the and Torah was not written, and, and, and the word they used was uh, the word they used was learning. We learned, we studied. So Mikra Torah is the is what we call Tanakh typically. As we said, Tanakh is divided into twenty four books. The for it, the, 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 the word Tanakh itself, the acronym Tanakh, refers to the classic tripartite division into Torah, Nevi'im, and Ksuvim. Tuf stands for Torah, Nun stands for Nevi'im, Kuf stands for Ksuvim. Torah, we know, that's the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Rejish, Mos, Vikr, Midbar, Dvarim. The other two, Nevi'im and Ksuvim, the, exactly what the difference is is actually somewhat obscure. It's, it's not that obvious what makes something a work of Nevi'im, what makes something a work, of, a work of Ksuvim. It's not the chronology. Some of the works of Ksuvim are very early. Or they're, they're contemporaneous to some of the works of Nevi'im. For example, uh, Mishle. Mishle, according to our tradition, was written by Shlomo. Mishle is written by Shlomo HaMelech, one of the main protagonists of Tefer Malachim, and it's, uh, which is Nevi'im. Some of the works of Ksuvim, Tehillim, Tehillim is Ksuvim, Tehillim was written largely by David HaMelech. So it's, the, it's, not, it's not the chronology, it's not the author necessarily, David HaMelech is, uh, some of the works of Ksuvim, it's not necessarily the author. The, what exactly the difference is, is not entirely clear, there, there, are, there are different interpretations, the, the level of Nevuah perhaps, but we're not going to get into that right now. We have Nevi'im and we have Ksuvim, and navigating Navi, we're going to be studying Navi, which is that middle section between the, the Nun of Tanakh. Nevi'im is further sometimes subdivided into Nevi'im Rishonim and Nevi'im Achronim. The, the early Nevi'im, the early prophets, the later prophets. I, I'm not sure where this distinction comes from. I don't think it's Talmudic. I, I don't think it's, a, it's an ancient uh, critical distinction. It's print, they're, they're printed that way often. You look at certain sets of Navi, you'll see Nevi'im Rishonim, Nevi'im Achronim. I don't think it has any halachic significance. Uh, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ksuvim has halachic significance. There are rules about placing Torah on top of Nevi'im. The Torah is considered to have greater Kedusha and so on. I don't think Nevi'im, Rishonim, and Achronim have that much significance. It's, my understanding is, I didn't research this, it's largely a printer's or an organizer's convention. One difference is, Nevi'im, Rishonim are largely narrative. Nevi'im, Rishonim comprise... Yoshua, Shoftim, Shmuel, and Malachim, which are all narrative. They, they, they all tell uh, stories, more or less. Yeah, there, are, there are some non-narrative sections, but they're largely, they're almost entirely narrative. Nevi'im Achronim, Yeshaya, Yirmiya, Yecheskel, Treyasar, and so on, are largely not narrative. They do contain some stories, but the Nevuos of Yeshaya, much of the Haftarahs are from Yeshaya, are largely not narrative. They're prophecies about the future, they're, they're descriptions of the greatness of God, they're ruminations on the, the sinfulness of Israel or the redemption of Israel. They're largely not narrative. They're also more poetic. They are thus often harder to understand, but both because they aren't telling a, a coherent story and because they're more poetic. So Nevi and Rishonim, just as a practical matter, are often uh, a little more accessible. Uh, for better or for worse, we're going to be starting with Nevi'im Rishonim. We're going to be starting with the very first Navi, which is Yoshua, which is the first of the Nevi'im Rishonim. It is largely narrative until we get to the, to the, the cartographical parts, which are all maps. But the, Yeshua is largely narrative. It, it, it picks up where, the, where Sefer Dvarim ends. 
and God willing, if we continue our share, God willing, we'll move from there on to the next view of the Nevi'im Rishonim, Shmuel, Shoftim, Shmuel, and then Malachim. What, what we'll do if we finish the Nevi'im Rishonim, we'll, uh, we'll leave for, for further discussion. The, so, so Yeshua is the first, is, is the first, the first Navi, the first of the, the first of the Nevi'im Rishonim, and it picks up literally right after, right after the end of the end of the end of Sefer Dvarim, the end of the Chamish from Shetara. As a matter of fact, the the the, the passage we're going to start with today, the very the very beginning of Yeshua, may be familiar to some of you because it is the Haftarah that we read on Simchas Torah. On Simchas Torah, right after we we we, we just finished the Torah, we read the last Yipsukim of the Torah. And then we we started Bereshis, but the, the Haftarah is always connected in some way. Sometimes closely connected, sometimes a little more uh, a little more creatively connected. Sometimes it's only one pasuk or one phrase in the Haftarah that's connected to the that's clearly connected to the Torah reading. But this is an obvious choice. We read on some Haftarah because we just ended with Moshe's death and the end of Chamish and Torah, and we begin. We're going to begin with the story in Yeshua, which literally begins by He Mos Moshe. There's no closer connection that you can possibly get. It's it's, it's right. It's, it's the, the, the Navi explicitly connects it to the end of the end of the end of Sefer Dvarim, and it's the next episode in the history of Kal Yisrael that is that is what we're going to study today, and that is what we're going to study today. Before we begin, though, I want to read a little bit of the of the Hakdama, the introduction of the Radak to Sefer Yeshua to Nevi'im. So again, a, method, a few methodological points. We're going to focus. My intention is, my plans are subject to change, but we're going, to, we're going to focus, as I plan it, largely on a number of the classic commentaries on the Navi, largely the Rishonim, that's the, 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 those are the commentaries I understand, I'm more familiar with, I relate to better. The, the, the great medieval commentaries are common, commonly printed in many Makros Gedolos editions of the Navi. They are Rashi, of course, the, the, the most, one of the most important commentaries on Tanakh, the Radak, the Ralbag, also Matsudas Dov, Matsudas Dov, and Matsudas Sion, the Matsudas, they're called collectively. They are actually an Achron, but they're written in the style of the Rishonim, that they're often uh, kind of uh, excerpts of the Rishonim, and, 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 and the, the writing and the, the ideas are kind of in the same style. They're often kind of abridged and more streamlined and more accessible versions of the comments of the, of the Rishonim. So we're going to focus largely on those. They're available, they're, 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 they're classic, they're, they're, they're highly regarded commentaries. Uh, a little bit about who these Mepharshim are. So Rashi, of course, is Rashi. Rashi is uh, one of the earliest of the medieval commentaries, one of the most influential. He was revered by, the, by his disciples and descendants as the first of place. Marban speaks, uh, speaks of him as the, the Mishpat HaBachara, the, the most important and earliest of the commentaries. Rashi wrote on, on Talmud, of course. He was a great Talmudist as well as a great, uh, as well as a great com- commentator on the Bible. Rashi, the, 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 one of the key themes that we're going to be discussing a lot in Navi, I, I do this in my Pasha Shurim as well, is the relationship of the different ways to interpret Torahs, but Pshat and Drash specifically. Pshat is what we call, it, it's hard to define exactly what Pshat is, but Pshat is the, is, the, is the plain reading of the text. Pshat is how you interpret the, the without Midrashim, without uh, specific oral traditions, how you would approach the Tanakh, with you know, largely based on the text itself. Now, obviously, we, we bring to the Tanakh some type, some pre-existing uh, commitments, some convictions. You know, we believe in the divinity of the Tanakh. We're not approaching the Tanakh as a work uh, written by nomadic tribes in the desert. We approach it as the word of God, the word of prophets. So obviously, we have a certain theological framework with, with which we approach the Tanakh, but within that, 
the, the school of Pshat the, with, within traditional Judaism believe that you, both in Chamish Chomshetara and in Navi, believe that you can approach the text, assuming that the axioms are the text means largely what it says. We, there, there aren't uh, events that are not described in the text necessarily. The, the words should be interpreted more or less literally. Again, these are not hard and fast rules, but in general, the, the Pshat school is a school that, that, that believes that the text more or less should be interpreted in a kind of conventional, down-to-earth, uh, text-based way. Rashi himself has, says repeatedly in his commentary to the Torah that he's trying to do pshat. He says there are many midrashim, but I'm not going to bring them because my job is to explain pshat. However, Rashi does bring many midrashim and often deviates from the simple pshat. And, and the, the, one of Rashi's grandsons, the Rashbam, actually calls him out on it in a famous, uh, in a famous passage in Pasha's Vayeshev. The Rashbam says... Rashi wanted to do pshat, but he didn't quite—he uh, didn't quite follow through. Uh, he didn't stick to pshat as much as he could have. And he says, I, 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 "I sometimes challenged him." And Rashi conceded. He says that he might have to revise certain things to, uh, in light of new pshatim and new ideas of pshat. The Rashbam is one of the most uh, celebrated exponents of pshat. People sometimes think people sometimes think that studying Chumash according to pshat is somehow less from, less religious. It's, it's modern. It's kind of more academic. Not entirely true. It is true that academic students of the, uh, academic students of, the, of Tanakh are more interested in pshat and midrash sometimes, but pshat was a very, very legitimate uh, traditional Jewish approach. The Rashbam was a great Talmudist as well. He was one of the ones who he, he wrote the commentary in Baba Bastra and Argamars. Rashbam was a uh, was a celebrated uh, Talmudist in the Tosafist school, and yet the Rashbam wrote one of the very greatest pshat commentaries on Chumash. I don't think we have, we don't have his work on Navi, at least not most of Navi, but uh, the Rashbam wrote on Chumash, and his, his works on Chumash are, are, are one of the most important works of Pshat. Routinely ignores Midrashim, routinely explains Sukkim differently from Hazal, because he had a commitment to Pshat. The, the Rashbam. His name was Rabbi Shmuel ben Meir. Uh, as many of, the, many, of the, many of the medieval and later, later commentaries, his, his name was abridged uh, in, in four letters commonly. Reish is for Rabbi, Rabbeinu, or Rebbe. And in Rashbam's case, Shin stands for Shmuel, and Bey stands for Ben, the son of, and Mem stands for Meir. Rashi himself stands for Rabbeinu Shlomo Yitzchaki, Shlomo, the son of Yitzchak, or I think it's a question of what Yitzchaki means. Not the Ramban, no. There, there, are, a lot of, there are a lot of very similar sounding uh, names. The Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, is one of the greatest of the, of the commentaries as well. He was also a great Talmudist. His commentaries on Talmud are important. His, his commentary on the Chumash is considered one of the very greatest commentaries on Chumash. He also does a lot of Pshat, although he sometimes uh, is dissatisfied with some, what he considers some of the excesses of Pshat by those uh, like the Ben Ezra. Ramban, as far as I know, did not write on Navi. We don't have his commentaries to Navi. Rambam, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, was the... Great, was one of the greatest halachists and philosophers Judaism ever had. He did not write systematically on, uh, on Navi, although his ideas influenced generations of later authorities. And the Radak himself, we'll get to the Radak momentarily, the Radak himself, Radak stands for Rabbi David Kimchi, Rabbi David of the Kimchi family. The Kimchi was an uh, illustrious medieval family. The, the Radak is largely known as a, as a, as a commentary, as an exegete. He, he, he did not write on, as far as we know, he did not write much on, on Talmud, on Halacha, but he was a celebrated uh, biblical commentator. He was of the school of the Rambam. He was very much influenced by the Rambam's ideas and philosophy and rationalism. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss that as we get to it. So he, he, he was traditional. He also quotes a lot of Midrash. Uh, he, he brings us a lot of the Midrash, Midrashic approaches to the Tanakh come, are, are cited in the Radak. 
But also, he, he, he followed Rambam, as we'll see in his introduction in certain ways. He followed Rambam. He, he was a great admirer of the Rambam, very heavily influenced by the Rambam's ideas about theology and uh, medieval ideas about philosophy. So the, so the Radak is one of the great... Radak wrote on, on, on Chumash as well, although his commentary is less well-known. But uh, he's largely known for his commentary on Navi. That is the Radak. So Rashi was the earliest. Radak was a centuries later, a couple of centuries later. The Ralbag is another interesting work. Ralbag stands for Rabbi Levi ben Gershom. The Ralbag was a, was, it was a great Talmudist, also a great biblical commentator. He did not write systematically on Talmud per se. However, his, his biblical commentaries are replete with, uh, with halacha and uh, incorporates much of the Talmud. If you look at the Ralbag on Sefer Shmos, so he goes through the Pashias, Shmos, Va'era, Bo, B'Shalach, you look at Mishpatim, Mishpatim explodes. It's about it's like twice as long, three times as long as the earlier parashiyos because he incorporates into the legal sections of Mishpatim half of Babakama and half of Babmatsiya. He weaves it all into the, the Psukim. However, what the Ralbag is famous for is the Ralbag was a philosopher. He was the, probably the second greatest Aristotelian philosopher in the medieval period after the Rambam. He, he was a great admirer of the Rambam. He was more extreme. Rambam was controversial enough because he, he uh, incorporated a great deal of Aristotelian, of Greek philosophy into Judaism, and Ralbag went even further. Rambam made certain compromises to, uh, to preserve certain elements of traditional Judaism. Ralbag also preserved certain elements of traditional Judaism, but he preserved a little bit less. The Ralbag was even more radically committed to Greek philosophy, and the Ralbag was, within the mainstream Jewish tradition, he was probably the most radical, the most, uh, the most rigorously rationalist, the most, uh, the most uncompromisingly committed to the science and philosophy of his time. And he was quite controversial among the later, uh, late medieval authorities and early modern authorities because of his, some, some felt, like Maral, some of the more traditional authorities felt he had gone too far in his embrace of... Uh, in his embrace of Greek philosophy. Nevertheless, the Ralbag was still revered as one of the greatest of the medieval biblical commentaries. For some reason, I never figured out why, and I never saw anyone discuss this, for some reason his, his commentary on Nevi'im is a little more muted, a little more uh, conservative than his commentary to the Torah. His commentary on the Torah is full of bomb-throwing and kind of... And he, he, he doesn't polemicize. He's very, uh, he's very measured and very moderate in his tone. He doesn't... Uh, he writes like a scientist, everything... He, I, I often joke, Rambam was a fantastic stylist. Rambam writes with a poetry, with verve, with style. Ralbag has zero style. He writes with, uh, he writes like a cookbook or like a, or like a physics textbook. He writes like kind of, every word is just measured, precise. When, when you write science, you're, not out, you're generally not out to write poetry. You want to be precise, you want to be clear, you want to be explicit. Ralbag writes like that. Ralbag writes like uh, every, everything is uh, measured, deliberate, uh, the best word, even if it's not the most... Uh, even if it's not the most, uh, it doesn't have the most panache. But the Rabag is very clear. As a, as a consequence, Rabag is very, very clear. He's repetitive sometimes, but he's very, very, very clear. Rambam, the scholars have so much fun because there are contradictions and ambiguities and obscure passages. Rabag is very, very clear. There, there, there's no fun in studying Rabag because it's very, it's very, very straightforward. It's very, it's deep. Some of it, I don't understand much of it because I don't have the background in Aristotelian philosophy. But if you do, it's. Uh, it's a, it's a relatively clear work. For whatever reason, his, his, tradition, his commentary on Navi is more traditional and in, in, includes less of his radical ideas. But Ralbag also is one of the great, uh, great Mepharshay Pshat, very, very literal-minded, very, very, uh, very focused on words, on Pshat. So we're going to be focused, as I said, largely on, on Rashi, on uh, the Radak, the Ralbag, the Matsudas David. The Matudos was a much later authority in Akron, I think a couple of centuries ago. 
His commentary has two parts called Matsudas David and Matsudas Tzion. There, there, there are two parts of a whole. Matsudas David is a traditional commentary, a kind of running explanation of the verses and the ideas. Matsudas Tzion is, is, a linguistic, uh, is a linguistic component. He focuses on specific words, unusual words, and he translates them for you, or he gives you context. So the Matsudas David typically incorporates whatever interpretation he puts on a word in Matsudas Tzion, he incorporates that into his general explanation of the of the, of the Psukim in, in his Matsudas David. He's not the most original commentary, which is good. He's essentially a, he essentially, there's room for both, obviously, creativity and uh, a, a methodological approach. What he does largely is, is synthesize the, the earlier commentaries. He, he gives it to you in a very digestible, very, uh, very comprehensible way. Um, he, doesn't often, he often doesn't quote by name, but you can trace pretty clearly who he's quoting and what he's quoting. He wasn't trying to plagiarize. He was just trying to give you a kind of digest and a kind of uh, a more accessible approach to the... To the to the Naveen. So, with that being said, I, ho- I hope we'll get to it. We should get to at least some sukkim of actual Yeshua today. But I want to read a little bit from the from the introduction of the Radak because it is uh, there are some fascinating ideas, some fascinating points that that I've, I've always found interesting in this Radak. So the Radak begins. He quotes the pasuk in uh, he quotes a uh, he, he, he quotes a famous pasuk that the pasuk says. The, that, that the Pasuk says, Reishis Chachma Yiras Hashem, that the, the beginning of Chachma is Yiras Hashem. Yiras Hashem should precede Chachma. So what does that mean? What does that mean Yiras Hashem should precede Chachma? What does Chachma mean? What does Chachma mean in this context? So in rabbinic literature, Chachma generally often means one of two things. Sometimes it means Torah, specifically Torah. Sometimes, depending on who's interpreting it, sometimes it means general wisdom, philosophy, wisdom of uh, broad, broad wisdom, wisdom beyond what we would call Torah. The Radak, as I said, was a follower of Rambam. According to the Radak, Chachma means, in this case, general philosophy, non, non-Torah wisdom. What the Pasuk means when it says that you have to begin with, uh, Chazal interpreted to mean that a person has to have, a person has to have, uh, that a person has, if a person has yiras cheto kodemas lechachmaso, if a person has yiras chet, fear of chet, fear of Hashem, if it precedes his chachma, then his chachma will be miskayemes, his chachma will be preserved. If his chachma is kodemas liyiras cheto, but if he if he does it in the wrong way, if he jumps at the chachma before he has a solid grounding in yiras Hashem, he will be in trouble. His chachma will not will not turn out well. So what does that mean? So again, to understand what the Radak is saying here, you have to be familiar with, uh, with, with the milieu in which he was writing, the, the, into the intellectual milieu of the medieval period. As I mentioned earlier, Rambam and Ralbag were controversial because of their embrace of Greek philosophy. Many people felt, that many of their contemporaries and later generations felt that they had betrayed some of the traditional ideas of Judaism because of their commitment to uh, philosophy. This, of course, is an argument that echoes down to our age. We, we have you know, some modern Orthodox thinkers, um, you know, have, have, you know, have anyone from Rav Salvechik to you know, Rav Kook to others you know, who, who have embraced certain, you know, cer- certain elements of modern thought and had their opponents. They had their critics who felt that they had uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. You know, there, there, there are many outstanding thinkers in, in, in modern Jewish thought who had critics because people felt that they had uh, that they were too quick to embrace uh, modern science, modern philosophy, modern liberal thought, and so on. There are more reactionary schools of thought. 
which believe that uh, Jewish thought should be developed only internally, should not pay any attention to, uh, to external thought, that anytime there's any sense of conflict, the Torah has to prevail and should never be reinterpreted to accommodate other thought. And others felt differently. Others felt, uh, Refersh, and others felt that, uh, that other, other disciplines, other sciences and culture can be used to uh, help us understand the Torah and can actually reshape our understanding of certain parts of the Torah. So this has been an epic, uh, this has been maybe the epic or certainly one of the epic arguments in Judaism for a thousand years from the time of the Gon, named Rav Sadia Gon, was a great philosopher. The, so the, in the time of the Rambam, that was perhaps the most acute, uh, acute uh, version of this clash. The Rambam had uh, vehement opponents to what he did, to the extent that his works were burned, because people uh, got caught up in the controversy, people spoke to the church about his works, it wasn't the Jews who burnt his works, it was the church, but it had to do with the controversy between the Maimonideans and the anti-Maimonideans. The Rambam's place in, in Jewish tradition, of course, is secure today. The Rambam is revered as one of the greatest authorities we've ever had, although, again, its philosophical thought is, 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 not, uh, is not widely studied in traditional Maranavuchim uh, and so on. It's not widely studied today in traditional Jewish circles. The other, other schools of thought have become dominant, but this argument has flared up repeatedly. Every couple of centuries, there's been a new version of this conflict. Today, it's, you know, it's, it's between, let's say, Yeshiva University, some of their people, and some people on the other side, Rav Hirsch and his time and so on. So they said that this has been an argument that, that, that's been going on for you know, 800 or 1,000 years in, uh, in Jewish thought. And the Rambam's time in particular, so well, this was a great debate. There were those who felt that studying Greek, Greek wisdom was corrosive, it destroyed your year as Hashem, it destroyed your Amuna. So those who defended it, like the Rambam and his followers, often hastened to emphasize that you have to begin with a solid grounding in Torah before you branch out to, uh, to, these, more, to these more potentially dangerous disciplines. The people like the Radak believed that it was good to study philosophy, it was good to study Greek wisdom, it could enhance your understanding of Torah, of God, of, of the universe, but only when, when, when you were secure in a solid framework of Torah. So that's how the, the Radak explains this pasuk. When you have to, when you have, to have Yiras Hashem, Kodemus Lachachmaso, he says, that means that a person has to begin by studying Torah. Once he's solidly grounded in Torah, then he can study philosophy because his, his, his knowledge of Torah, his, his understanding of the truths that are conveyed by the Torah, will make sure he knows what he can accept from, 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 from secular philosophy, what he should reject, what, what he has to reinterpret. But the, the crucial thing, the Radak says, is that you have to start with Yiras Hashem, you have to start with Torah, and then you can branch out. And this was a very, this was a very typical concession that was made by the, by the pro-philosophy forces to the anti-philosophy forces. They said, we agree that philosophy is dangerous. That's why we agree that you need a solid grounding in Torah, in traditional Jewish ideas, before you can go out and study and study these things because it's dangerous. And that's, and that's an idea that you know, still has uh, resonance in our day. You want to study biblical criticism. You want, to study, uh, you want to study the theory of evolution, the age of the universe, astrophysics, and so on. Many, you know, many Jewish thinkers will say that's fine, but approach it first from a perspective of solid Torah. First accept the fundamentals of faith, and then when you learn these disciplines, you'll be able to, hopefully you can somehow accommodate, you'll, you'll find some way of, uh, of reconciling whatever you study in these disciplines with, uh, with the truths of the Torah. Exactly how you reconcile them, that, that, that's a topic uh, we're not going to get into today, you know, what, what, the, what the right approach is. But this is a, this is a very kind of in common sense and logical approach that we find that even if you're going to study ideas that potentially can take you away from Torah, study them within a framework of Torah so that you could... This is actually brought in Shulchan Aruch. It, it says that if you study philosophy, make sure you first... Uh, the Ramah brings, make sure that you first... Uh, the, 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 the poetic expression is, make sure that you first are mile kreso babasar v'yayin, first fill your stomach with 
the meat and wine, the salad, uh, the salad, the uh, soul improving truths of the Torah. And then afterward, you can go out and study the, these other things, and, and you'll have you'll, you'll be secure, and you'll have your uh, you'll, you'll have you'll have the you'll have the background with which to uh, with which to interpret. He goes on. He has many other interesting things in the introduction. We're not going to. Our introduction is getting long enough. As it is, we're, we're not going to get into all the points he makes in his in his introduction. I do I do want to discuss though. I, I do want to read the very end of his introduction where he says an amazing and somewhat controversial thing, which uh, is not widely known, but I think it should be because the Radak is, as I said, one of the greatest of the biblical commentaries. After he goes through this whole poetic, philosophical introduction, the life, the universe, and everything, Torah, and philosophy, and so on, so he he finally returns to the actual, the nature of Tanakh itself, the nature of of Nabim, and he writes at the end, he he tells you what he's going to do, he's going to explain... He's going to explain the psukim that he has to uh, explain the words, and he has to explain he has to explain various other aspects of Tanakh. And one of the things he says he's going to focus on, which he does throughout his commentary, is the nature of Kriyan Ksiv. So Kriyan Ksiv, the, the dichotomy of Kriyan Ksiv, Kufresh Yud Ksiv, Kuf Tuf Yud Yud Beis. Kriyan means the way something is is read. Ksiv means the way something is written. 99.99% of words in Tanakh are read the way they're written. You read the Nakudos, we learn how to read Hebrew in school, we read the, we read the Nakudos, and that's how you read the word. There are, there are a number, a few hundred maybe, examples in, uh, examples in Tanakh, in Chamishon Shetara, and even more in Nevi'im and Ksuvim, where we have an ancient tradition that even though the word is written a certain way, certain letters, it has a vav, it doesn't have a vav, or even more substantial letters. We don't read it like that. We read it as if it said something else. Sometimes you read the entire word differently. Certain words in, in Chumash, it says, uh, it says ba'apolim, we read batachorim. It says yishkalena, we read yishkavena. Certain cases we read a word entirely differently. Certain words we just don't read a word at all. In certain cases in the Megillah, so there's an entire word we don't read. Rus, I think, we just skip a word. With sometimes letters, we, it says one letter, we read a different letter. These are ancient, ancient traditions. These go back, it's not clear how far back they go, that's what we're going to discuss in a moment. These are ancient traditions going back at least a thousand years, that even though the ksiv, the way it's written, is one way, the kri is a different way. And again, it's, no one knows for sure, when, when, no one can be, ab- we're not absolutely certain where this tradition started, but these traditions are part of what we call the Masorah. The, the Masorah, in, in a general sense, we all know the word Masorah means tradition, all the, the Torah that we have is all Masorah. When we read Tanakh, Misorah has another meaning. If, if you get a, a, a good Tanakh, an old Tanakh, they, they often print the, this one doesn't have it, but they, they often print what is called the Misorah. The Misorah has a very specific, the Misorah has a very specific meaning. The Misorah was a collection of notes about the text. Before they had printing where the, the danger of copying errors was tremendous, there was a system called the Misorah. Scribes a thousand years ago or more developed a system of marginal notes, very, very brief marginal notes. They're almost in code. You have to be familiar with Masoretic lingo and abbreviation to know what they're talking about. But Masoretic notes are little notes that were written by scribes a thousand or more years ago to help make sure they're kind of like checksums and computers to try to make sure that the, that the text would be preserved. So, for example, if a word has an unusual spelling, let's say if a certain word appears a hundred times in Tanakh and 95% of the time there's a vav and five times there's not, so the Masoretic will note... Uh, It'll, it'll say something like hey lessa or like five times there's no fun and it'll list briefly what they are so this way you know that, that out of the hundred times there are exactly five spelled this way the other 95 are spelled the other way and that was a kind of very terse brief way of noting uh, that know how many times they are here or what they are and this is how you spell the word 
The Misora has a lot of these notes about uh, questions about the text, about the pronunciation of different words. One of the things in the Misora is the notion of creum sim, the, the traditions that certain words are read differently than they're spelled. What is that all about? Why are there words that we read differently from the... What is, what is that? Why is there a ksiv? Why is there a kri? What is the meaning of that? So the Radak has a remarkable interpretation. The Radak says he's generally going to explain to you why both the kri and the ksiv have, are meaningful, how they can both be read, and the, sometimes they boil down to the same thing in a different grammatical form. Sometimes they're saying slightly different things, but they're both true. They're both different elements of the story. But in general, the Radak is going to justify both the Kree and the Ksiv. He, he makes a big point of doing that. However, the Radak says, and this is the, this is the novel part, he says that the... He says, Venera, it seems, he says, apparently, Kiamilos Ela Nimtsus Kane. Why are they like this? Because in the Gullus Rishona, in the, in the Babylonian exile, between the first and second temple, in the, in, in the Babylonian exile... He says um, they, there, were, uh, there, there were errors, there were corruptions because of the turmoil and the difficulty of the Gullus. They, there was, a, there was a, a lapse in the, in, the, in the previously stellar ability to preserve the text of the Torah accurately. And he says, and so when Ezra came back, Ezra, Ezra was a famous scribe, Ezra Sofer. He, the Gemara talks about the Sefer Torah of Ezra, a great Sefer Torah that he wrote that was an authoritative master text that they preserved for centuries after, after the time of Ezra. So the, throughout the Second Temple era, so when, one of Ezra's jobs was essentially to do what we would consider biblical criticism, lower biblical criticism, the comparing text and trying to figure out the accurate text. Higher criticism deals with authorship questions, which is a different topic, but lower criticism is the question of trying to extricate the most accurate text. That's what Ezra did. He had conflicting texts that had arisen in the time of the, time of the Babylonian exile. So when he could to his satisfaction, ascertain the correct text. That was the text he preserved. However, he says, when, uh, when he wasn't sure, when he wasn't actually sure, he did a compromise. His com- he implemented a compromise. He says, sometimes he, uh, sometimes he wrote, he wrote one as Kiv and one as Kri, or he wrote, uh, he wrote one with Nakudos, one without Nakudos, and with Nakudos is what we call Kri, without Nakudos is what we call Ksiv. And so the, the Kri and Ksiv, according to the Radak, is a is when Ezra couldn't decide what the accurate text was, he preserved both by, in this, in this, you know, we do it differently. We, we write footnotes, we write uh, alternates, whatever, but uh, Ezra's style was, he preserved both in the form of a Kriyuk Sif. Um, I, I, it's been a while since I looked at an actual Tikkun, so I don't remember, it's possible. In, in, in general, the, the Masoretic notes, they used to be very, very common in, 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 in Gud Chumashim and Kroos Gidel, they used to be very, very common. As, as printing standardized things, as we had other methods of preserving the text, printing and so on, and text became much more standard, people had less interest, I think, in the Masoretic notes. They, so, so after a while, modern Hamashim often don't print them. But yeah, so the Tikkun, I'd have to check exactly what they print. I'm not sure. It could be. But um, so that's Radak's interpretation of Kri and Siv. He says they're not actually both Misinai. The, one of them is correct and one of them is not correct, so to speak. And, but, but the Radak preserved both, but, but Ezra preserved both when he wasn't sure which was which. That's a somewhat radical approach. The more traditional approach is that Kriyam Siv goes back to Sinai or goes back to whatever Navi wrote them, that they're both written by the Navi. Both, both, were, both were established by the Navi itself. That's the much more traditional approach. The Abarbanel, maybe a topic for another time, the Abarbanel disagrees with Radak and insists that they're both essentially part of Torah, not based on variant text. However, the Barbanel has perhaps an even more radical approach to Kriyam Siv. The Barbanel says 
that the that Barbanel also says like, he doesn't say that both. We've seen that. What, what he says is, is what he says is is that the he, he proposes that the as I recall that when Ezra thought there was a mistake in the text. So, so, so he, he says the Cree is generally the more correct one. The Cree is the one that makes more sense grammatically. Radak tries to defend both, but the Cree is often the one that seems to be more, uh, more correct, the, the, the Radak, particularly in Navi. In Chumash, maybe less so, but particularly in Navi, the Cree often seems to be right, so to speak, and the Ksiv seems to be more problematic. So the Arbarbanel suggests that the Cree, one of he has several approaches. One of them is that they are both they are both intent with the word of Hashem, and they both have you know, they both have divine meaning. But one of his approaches is that Ezra wanted to correct the Navi. When Ezra found what he thought were mistakes, he wanted to correct it. But he was but he had a he had Yerushalmi and he was afraid to he didn't want to lift a hand to the sacred text. So instead of just crossing it out and putting the new text in, he left the Ksiv and put the Cree as 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 what he felt was a more correct text. But uh, as to why the texts were incorrect, he has, an, he has an incredible theory. This is the controversial part. He says that a Navi, even though he's, even though he's recording the word of God, but unlike Moshe, who was pal peh, who had, every, who had crystal clarity and every, where everything was exactly as God said, other Navim had a faklari and a meira. They, they saw through a, through a glass darkly. They did not see as clearly as Moshe. Other Navim, their own character, their own personality, their own mental faculties were involved in recording the Navua. The, the word choice, the style choice, was their own. Some Nevi'im were simply better writers than others. He says Yeshaya, again, we're not going to get to Yeshaya for a while, but uh, we'll see if we, if we get to Yeshaya. Yeshaya was, uh, was, was, uh, was a member of the royal family. He was a nephew of the king, and he had a royal education. That's why Yeshaya's style is so beautiful, and Yeshaya, Yeshaya was, uh, was, was a master uh, in, uh, in, in, in Les Miserables, I think, in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. One of the characters, one of the students says... That he learned Hebrew, so he learned Hebrew. I think specifically so he could read Yeshaya in the original. One of the French students says he learned Hebrew so he can read Yeshaya in the original, Isaiah in the original. But uh, Yeshaya is a master stylist. He had the poetry of Yeshaya is incredible. Okay, how did he know that he was a master stylist of Hebrew? I mean, there were academics at that time who started Hebrew. I can't tell you for sure what Hugo's uh, background was, but um, anyway, so the, the point is that Yermio was, was a commoner. He was a Kohen from Anassos, so Rabbanel says his education wasn't as strong as, as, as Yeshaya's, and therefore, he says there are far more Korean Ksivs in Yermio than Yeshaya, he says, and then the reason is because Yermio was not as good a writer as Yeshaya. That's a very radical thing to say, to say that there's so much humanity and so much human, human error, and minor error, but uh, not, not that the actual content is anything wrong with it, but that Barbanel is very radical in his own sense, or Barbanel was sharply criticized for this by other more traditional commentaries for daring to say that there are human elements of style in the Nevi'im. But be that as it may, the, we have basically three approaches to Kriyuksiv, broadly speaking. The traditional approach, which Barbanel himself acknowledges as a, one approach, is that they're both part of the sacred text, they're both divinely inspired, they both have divine wisdom, they're both meaningful. Radak himself is often going to explain how both of them, at least on a shot level, make sense. The Radak's approach is that they reflect uh, uncertainty as to the correct text, they, re- they, re- they, re- they reflect variant text that Ezra couldn't properly decide between, and Abarbanel's uh, approach is that they represent uh, corrections, improvements on the style of the Navi, where the Navi sometimes may have uh, committed infelicities in style, and the and the and and Ezra corrected them.
So that's interesting. So, it's, so he's, he's mentioning a fourth approach, which I was not familiar with. I, I don't know anything about it, but that the, the, the Masorah was preserved by different factions. There were, there were the scribes who focused on writing, and then there were the, the readers who focused on reading, and then they preserved one tradition. Like, uh, that's an interesting idea. So, uh, so I don't... Um, um, I don't know. I, it's another interesting idea. So, yes, I, I don't have anything to say about it, but that, that's another approach, apparently, to, to Kareem Tziv. In any event, the, 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 Radak, the Radak continues. He says that, so he's going to explain Kriyang Siv, he's going to explain the Pshat of the Psukim, he's going to explain, um, he's going to often cite Yonason Benazil, the Targum Yonason, which has many Perushim Tovim Benoim, beautiful and good explanations. He's going to bring Divri Rabbosenu Midrash, whether from the Talmud or from other Midrash, and Radak brings a lot of Midrash throughout his. Uh, when are we going to bring Midrash? He says either when we have to, uh, we, either when we require their Pirush and Kabbalah for interpreting Pesukim, meaning not every Midrash does he think is equally essential to understand the Navi, but in certain cases he feels apparently the Midrash is useful and helpful to understand the, to understand the Navi. And also he says he's going to bring sometimes Drashas, Drash, for those who are Oave Drash, for those who, are, uh, who like Drash, He's going to bring some midrash as well. So then, that's a, pr- a pretty good description of the Radak's commentary. It's a, he has a, he has a kind of spectrum of uh, simple chats. Radak sometimes gets deep into the technicalities of grammar, which we're usually going to skip because I don't have the background to understand a lot of the grammar. But uh, he, he engages in chat. He engages in midrash. He engages in uh, and so on. He also engages in anti-Christian polemic on some books of Navi. To, to, he fought vigorously against Christological interpretations of the Navi. I don't know if we'll see that much of that in Yeshua, but to him, he has a lot of that. Tell you a story about that another time if I remember. Just to do at least one pasuk, just to start the pasuk itself, the, the, the word of the navi. Very first pasuk, Vahi Achrei Mos Moshe Eved Hashem. It was after the death of Moshe, the servant of Hashem. Vayom Hashem al Yeshua ben Nun, Mosharis Moshe Lamer, and God spoke to Yeshua ben Nun, the servant of Moshe, as follows. We're not, we're not even going to finish this first. We're usually going to go faster. We're not going to go through an introduction every week, but we'll have to continue this pasuk next week. But just just to discuss the very first letter of the very first word of the very first pasuk in Yoshua, Vayehi, Vav. What does Vav mean? So we're, we're used to translating Vav as and. We commonly translate Vav in Hebrew as and. It's actually a tremendous problem, a tremendous argument in, 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 in biblical translation whether Vav means and or not. In the beginning of Psukim, I think I once read about 90% of Psukim and Chumash start with Vav. If you look at translations, some translate all those Vavs as and, and some do not. For example, Bereshis, Bereshis bar Lakim, Bereshis doesn't start with the Vav, V'ha'aret taisa so vavo, V'yomer elokim yihiar, so the first, three out of the first four Psukim begin with Vavs. If you look in Artscroll's translation, for example, Artscroll does not write, and it was Tovavo, and God. Artscroll does not put in those ends. Artscroll leaves out those ends entirely. And that's it's not just Artscroll. Many, many important translations, do, some important translations do not feel that those ends are, are translated as and. They feel that those are stylistic and, stylistic vows. They, they, they don't mean in Hebrew a simple and in English. What do they mean? Why are they there? That, that's a, a more complex question of biblical translation. But they, they do not feel that Vav means and. Other commentaries say, no, Vav means and. Vav achibur, Vav most filling in Rishon. That Vav does mean and. This Vav, Vayhi Achri Moshe Eved Hashem, the commentaries are split on whether Vav here should be correctly translated as and or not. Rashi says, as we said earlier, what is Yoshua? It continues the story in Varmitz. After Moshe died, and then, and then Hashem spoke to, uh, to Yoshua. He was, then, he was appointed to take over. So Rashi says, Connected to the end of the Torah. That's the Vav. The Radak brings, uh, brings an explanation that, it's not a, uh, that the Vav does not mean end. He says, 
the Radak says that, that there are many vavs in the Torah. He says that, 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 that there, are, there are many vavs in the Torah that, that are not correctly translated as and. Many vavs in the Torah, he says, are... He says... It's a Hebrew style is to write vav, even when you aren't trying to connect anything. He gives examples of different circum of the Torah where it's clearly not a, uh, there's, no, there's no need for a vav, the, 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 the context is perfectly clear without it. He brings various psukim and he says, vav should not always be interpreted as and, vav is sometimes a stylistic vav. We'll continue this point, we'll continue the first pasuk. As I said, we will be going faster in the future, but we'll, I, I intend to go faster in the future. We'll continue this pasuk, the discussion of the vav and the rest of the pasuk, uh, Blinader next time we meet.